you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. But <clears throat> thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to, to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Lexi. And great to be with you. My name's Dave. I have the joyful privilege of being one of the pastors here and really excited to open up God's word. So keep 2 Corinthians 2 and 3 open in front of you. And as you do, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to provide, and so we ask, would you provide for us now, just as you performed miracles in Christ to feed thousands of people through only a few fish and loaves, uh, would you take my words and feed us, make them more than they are by the power of your spirit, that we might be nourished for your glory. And all of God's people said together, amen. Well, the worst phone call I ever had would have looked like this. Hi, my name's David Chiswell, and I've been in Anglican churches my whole life, and I've been praying and seeking the Lord's will and talking to trusted friends and mentors, and, and I've come to a place where I've decided I'd like to get ordained as an Anglican priest. So I was wondering if I might be able to talk to a bishop about the next steps. Yep. Bye. Doesn't seem that bad. 
until you realise what happened on the other end of the line. See, if you were to hear the whole conversation, you would have heard, hi, my name's David Chiswell, Anglican Church my whole life, been praying, asking counsel. I think I'd like to get ordained. So I was wondering if I could talk to a bishop about the next steps. And they said, I'm sorry, darling, this is an adult store. I think you've got the wrong number. <laughs> yep, bye. <laughs> Two things we learn from that story. First one is the phone number for the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne is scarily similar to that of a very different organisation. Just change the five for a six and you have yourself a sermon illustration. The second thing we learn is that when you can only hear one side of a conversation, it can be kind of difficult to work out exactly what's going on. If you're sitting on the train or something, you can often work out what they're talking about, but sometimes it's a little bit tricky. Just Try it one time, go to your neighbor's letterbox, look at something that looks handwritten, pull it out, read it, see if it makes any sense. Or don't, that's, yeah, actually don't. But, but the idea is, it can be tricky if you only get one side of the conversation. And, and that's what we have here today. In fact, every time we open the New Testament and one of the letters, we're looking at one side of a conversation. And often, we can get a good idea of what's going on. It's provided in the context, the rest of the letter fills in the clues we know from history. We can have a really strong idea, and we don't need to panic because we also know that the Bible is written for us by God. The Bible is written for us. It may not be written to us or about us, but this letter is absolutely for us, and so we can absolutely have confidence that God is speaking to us and build our lives on it. We, we just need to be aware, though, that we're getting half the conversation. And so we want to understand what God is and isn't saying to us through Paul. And it's especially helpful to remember when you get to 2 Corinthians, I think. Because a lot of Paul's letters in the New Testament are a little bit easier than this one because Paul is writing to a church about how to be a good church. And we're a church trying to be a good church. And so the parallels are obvious. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is doing that and something else. He's writing about himself a lot. He pours himself out all through 2 Corinthians again and again, full of emotion trying to defend his ministry. You don't see that very often. Paul, Paul's trying to justify his relationship to this particular church, which puts it in a pretty different context to us. And I think that's what's going on in this passage this morning. We get an insight into Paul's ministry, how he thinks about it, what, what he thinks is going on here as he tries to justify himself to the church he's writing to. And there is some incredible stuff here for us. God is speaking to us, but we do want to keep our wits about us to see how it does and doesn't apply to us today. So we're going to step into this passage in two sections because I think it's kind of organized around two separate metaphors or analogies that Paul uses. So the first one is the triumphal procession. Let's begin in verse 14. 
But thanks be to God, Paul writes, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Picture this. The crowd begins to gather in the street outside. Before long, the road is just heaving with people. There's excitement in the air because rumor has begun to spread. They're back. The anticipation builds, and before you long, you can hear it, the applause that starts in the distance and and the distinct sound of trumpets announcing their arrival. And then you can smell it, a beautiful fragrance that everybody has learned to recognize as the sweet smell of victory. And then you can see it, it's the army marching in with pride in their eyes and smiles on their faces. They've just won a mighty victory, led by the emperor riding in on his chariot. This is a triumphal procession. Not unlike a grand final parade, actually. Actually, this is a real triumphal procession. You see there the emperor on his chariot, covered in glory, announced by trumpets and instruments and soldiers for all to see. And it's a whole big hullabaloo. A triumphal procession is big, right? And Paul uses this analogy, I think, in three ways in this passage as a metaphor for his ministry. And the first one is the victory. That's the first thing Paul wants to pick up as he talks about the triumphal procession. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That, that's the Christian story kind of in a nutshell and has been for about 2,000 years or so that, that Jesus has won a great victory and he leads us in it. Christ has died Christ has risen. Christ will come again and take us with him. And that's the best victory ever. If you flick back just two pages in your Bible, you look at 1 Corinthians 15, read about really another kind of triumphal procession, the same kind of imagery that Paul uses in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When it happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death swallowed up in victory. Just wrap your mind around that for a second. Mortality, not our problem anymore. Sin defeated forever. This is the victory we celebrate, that Christ has won and brings us into. So that's the first thing to get straight as we think about the triumphal procession, right? Jesus is the emperor. He's the one we celebrate in all of this. But, but the second aspect of this analogy that's worth picking up on is the smell. 
Because everyone in Corinth would have known that one of the distinct features of a triumphal procession is the scent of it. Wafting ahead through the streets, they'd burn incense ahead of the parade to let people know the procession was in town. It was quite literally there to be the smell of victory, whether it be a great military victory or some great news worth celebrating. And so Paul means to draw a parallel here. He's the smell. That's kind of his job. He is sent out into the world to be the fragrance, the sign, the symbol, the little scented pop-up notification that Jesus has won. Let all the world know. And so that's his role, just wafting through the world, bearing witness to the glory of Jesus and his great victory. But, but here's the thing about this fragrance that Paul picks up in this passage. People respond to the fragrance in different ways. Verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Everyone smells it. But to some it smells like life, to others it smells like death. If you like, you can think about it as the coriander of the kingdom. Right? <laughs> to some a very sweet taste, and to others it tastes like soap. But to some people, the smell of this victory, the hint that Jesus has won, is undeniably beautiful it somehow manages to smell like a far-off land that feels like home. This fragrance warms your soul and excites you even if you can't explain why. And to others, this same fragrance smells like death either because it seems unattractive in itself or because it confirms your worst fears. That there is something bigger and someone greater and you've rejected them. And so to people, the fragrance of Christ can, can be anything but sweet. It can be confronting or challenging or uncomfortable because the idea that Jesus might actually be the Lord of all things is pretty terrifying if you're on the wrong side of that. So unpleasant that it smells like death, Paul says. And I guess that's because it is. It really is a matter of life and death. Well, for us, as we look in on this part of the conversation, it's worth noticing at this point that we too are the smell you may not be an apostle or a church planter like Paul, but all of us who believe in Jesus, we are the fragrance of his victory, the aroma of Christ sent into the world. Which is to say, the way that God chooses to make known his victory is through you. You are the sign and symbol that Jesus has won. That's how the New Testament talks about us again and again. We are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, a city on a hill there to be noticed, to be an indication of the great reality that Jesus has won. 
to be a sign and symbol and smell of his victory. And so it wouldn't make sense for us to hide that, to put that light under a box or, or to deodorize the smell away. Because triumphal processions are not a matter of private personal preference. Therefore, everyone to hear about, to see and to smell, they're the sort of things you shout from the rooftops. And so we live our Christian lives out in the open for all to see. But as we do, let's not be surprised if to some people we taste like soap. If it is that we seem like the aroma of death, because to some people, we are. Don't be surprised at the same time if living a simple, faithful, public Christian life is remarkably attractive too. If that's enough to draw people in, to want to know more, some people will get a scent of Jesus through you, living a basic Christian life. And they'll say, I don't know what that smell is, but I want to know more about it. In fact, you might find that that's why you're here. Maybe it's what drew you in the first place, or maybe you're kind of fresh to church. You just turned up and you're not entirely sure why. I want to say, if that's you, you're so welcome. And that's amazingly normal. It's incredible how many people you meet come to church with no idea why they came. But for whatever reason, maybe it's an encounter you had with somebody else, or maybe it's you've reached the end of yourself, you've followed your nose, and now you're at church. If that's you, I want to say that your questions and your vulnerabilities are so incredibly welcome here. And I hope you find us to be a warm and welcoming community wherever you're at. And we want to help you follow your nose. If you've got questions, ask them. If you've got suspicions, chase them down. I want to commend the Alpha course tomorrow night as a way of doing that. Maybe if you came with someone, talk to them. But, but whatever brought you, keep following your nose. We'd love to help you. But don't go without talking to someone about your questions or your suspicions or even just your confusions about all things relating to faith. Because that's why we're here. To spread the good news of Jesus, to tell people about his victory. Paul puts it this way later in the letter. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As Christians, God sends us into the world to speak and act on his behalf with his authority for the sake of his kingdom. We are God's heralds and hostage negotiators, announcing his victory and pleading with people, be reconciled to God. And as you consider that as your role, I want to ask, how does that make you feel? Don't stuff it up, right? That seems like a bit of pressure. God's ambassador. That's an overwhelming job. Well, if you do feel anything like that, you're in good company. 
Because Paul feels the weight of that himself when he asks at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Who is adequate for this role? This job is way too big, this task far too important. Who could possibly think that they're up for it? This is where the third aspect of the triumphal procession metaphor comes in. This is what we're supposed to picture in verse 14. Paul uses this analogy to talk about more than just the victory and more than just the smell. There's also a sight he wants us to picture too. If you look at this picture again, you can see kind of soldiers on the left, some musicians somewhere in the middle, on the right, the emperor, but just in the back, if you look closely, slaves in chains. As far as we can tell, the way a Roman procession would work is you had the soldiers at the front, the emperor at the back, and in the middle, the spoils of war. The people that you'd captured from the enemy. Once dignitaries, politicians, businessmen of another land now paraded through your city in chains for all to see And when Paul uses the image of a triumphal procession, he means to do a very particular thing. He says, he leads us in triumphal procession as if to say, I am the one in chains. In this procession, my role is just to be someone who was captured. I'm not the victory winner here. If anything, I was playing for the other team. And then Christ captured me. He made me his slave and he made me his servant. And now my job is just to point to his glory. It's striking imagery, isn't it? Even more striking when you consider the other side of this conversation that Paul and the Corinthians are having, because later in the letter we learn that Paul is being accused of being unworthy to be an apostle. There are other teachers in town who look tall and good-looking and have the right haircuts, and they're strong, and they're rich, and they just look powerful. And so the Corinthians start to wonder, well, if they look like that, why should we listen to you, Paul? Because these guys, they just look more victorious, And Paul's argument is, I know, they do, but it's not my victory. This parade is not about me. It's about someone else. I am not the star of this show, and it's because of my weakness that I can be useful here. It's because he's captured me. It's because I've been conquered by Christ that I am worth anything to this parade. Because my role is not to point to myself, it's to point to the glory and strength and power and victory of someone else. So Paul asks, who is sufficient for these things? Well, by himself, it's not him. 
But when you understand his role in the parade, you see that God has made him sufficient for these things. Not by making him look victorious on his own, but by using his weakness. God has made him sufficient. And that changes the whole equation. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 3, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. It's through his weaknesses that God makes him useful. Through Paul's inadequacy, God shows his adequacy. Paul feels totally unqualified for the task. And he's Paul. If anyone's qualified, it's got to be him. And so, by contrast, we've got to feel even less qualified than Paul does. Don't we? The idea that you are the sign and symbol of Jesus' victory to the whole world. If you feel like you're not up to that task... The good news is, you're right. You are not sufficient for that. And neither am I. In fact, I'm becoming more and more aware of that every day. My dad was in ministry, and so growing up, I'd try and ask him, Dad, what do you do every day? And he never gave like a very straight answer, and so I started thinking maybe he's a spy. It can be hard to work out what you do in ministry every day. But he would open the Bible with people and just let God work. And now that I am a pastor, it's an incredible privilege to have a front row seat to what God is doing in people's lives. I just get to see way more of God's work than I deserve. But at the same time, I feel in over my head every single day. My, my insufficiency is becoming more and more obvious to me. And if we're being honest, nowhere is that more true than in preaching. Because I've noticed this alarming trend that the worse I feel about a sermon, the more God seems to use it. The less convinced I am by my own words here, the more God seems to do work in people's lives. It's not a direct rule, but it is a powerful reminder, I'm not sufficient for this. I wasn't kidding when we prayed that God would take things like a little kid's lunchbox and feed people. That feels like what's happening here. Because I'm learning that's how God works. Not through my strength, not through our sufficiency, but through His and if anything, he works through weakness. That's what he wants. I want to be faithful to prepare. I want to work hard at ministry using whatever gifts God provides. But, but it's just going to be the case that God uses my weaknesses to show himself most strong. And that's okay. Because the parade's not about me. Here's the paradox of that, though. It makes you weirdly confident. 
as you're painfully aware of your weaknesses, you can also be confident at the same time because the question is no longer, am I sufficient? The question becomes, is he? And so if you struggle with underconfidence, you can take your eyes off yourself and start to stand a little bit taller because it's not about you, it's about him. And we see it in this passage, don't we? In verse 4, Paul says he's confident, such is the confidence we have toward God. In verse 12, since we have such a hope, Paul says, we are very bold. We are not sufficient in ourselves, and yet we can be confident. And we can be bold because the whole point is this is not our parade. We're wrapped up in something so much bigger than ourselves, and so we're just faithful to turn up and be weak and let God do the work. Now, as Aussies, I think we don't like overconfident people very much. That's fair to say. We, we really have a healthy distaste for pride. We understand it's not good for us and, and it's not attractive. And as Christians, on top of that, we know that pride is sinful because God is the only one worthy of all glory, right? But but in that distaste and distrust of pride, I've noticed an interesting trend amongst Christians, particularly younger Christians, that we're so concerned with not being proud that the fear of pride stops us from doing good things. We're afraid to step into leadership positions because we're nervous we might fall prey to pride. We don't step into ministry opportunities because we don't want to become proud, or, or worse, to look like we're proud to other people. And I want to say that's a mistake. To let the fear of pride stop you from doing good and godly things, that's a mistake. Do good and godly things and don't be proud. That's the answer. Because this parade is not about us. Here's the secret, right? The, the antidote to pride is boasting. The antidote to pride is boasting about someone bigger and better than yourself. So get in the game. Don't sit on the bench for fear of pride. Step up and talk about someone else. Because you're not sufficient, but he is. There is no room for pride, but there is absolutely every reason for confidence, for boldness, and for faithful service. Knowing that, I think, explains why Paul talks the way he does in his second analogy in this passage. We've had the triumphal procession. Here he moves to the analogy of letters. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, you see it. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? It's another moment where it's helpful to understand what's happening on the other side of the conversation. But what would happen in places like Corinth is letters of commendation would often come before a traveling preacher or apostle or something like that. So we assume that the other teachers, these super apostles that were in Corinth, had letters commending them to the Corinthian church. It's like a CV or a resume or something, like the little blurb on the back of a book. They bring it with them and say, this is why you should listen to me. 
So people are beginning to ask of Paul, where's your letter? Where's your CV? What's your resume? Where's your letters of commendation? What makes you think we should listen to you? Which, which is more than a little bit ironic, I think, because Paul is being asked to justify himself as a church planter to a church that he planted in the first place. But Paul doesn't just rush straight to the obvious silliness of the question. He gives a pretty compelling argument. Verse 2 and 3, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God and not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. You are the reason, Paul says. You want a letter of recommendation? Look at what God's done in your life. It's the work that God has done in you, the work of the Spirit, not on a piece of paper, but on your hearts. That's all the evidence I need for this ministry. You want to know if Paul's worth listening to? Look at the people who listened to him and see what God did in their lives. Because Paul's not sufficient for this by himself. God needs to be the one who's strong through his weakness. And so you look at the impact of his ministry in people's lives. Because God does the work through Paul, despite Paul. He uses his weakness to change and transform human hearts. This is kind of like a complicated few verses. There's technical arguments going on. But but I think the way that Paul talks about his ministry and, and what he values here has a massive implication for us as a church. The way Paul talks tells us a lot for our life and ministry together. Here's the big takeaway. You ready? People are more important than programs. People are more important than programs. When Paul is asked to justify his ministry, he does not talk about the budget. He doesn't talk about the number of services, the amount of people in the pews, the size of the building. He talks about people and the way that God has changed their lives. That's what it's all about for him, and that's what it needs to be all about for us too. Yesterday, I had the privilege of going to a ministry conference with our apprentices. It was a fantastic time gathering with about 70 other people involved in training the next generation for gospel ministry. And there was a great time of catching up with old friends and mentors and and hearing how they've been doing, but about 90 seconds into every single conversation of these gospel workers, the same question would come. How's church going? How's church going? Now, if someone asks you that, what would you say? What would you think to talk about? The music's good, or the kids' ministry's awesome, the teaching's a solid six. Maybe you'd say we're about 400 people on a Sunday, or we've planted two churches in the last few years, we're having to plant a third in the next year or two. Those are all true things. But all of those things are about our programs, aren't they? And if that's our answer 
could that reveal something about what we value? I was really convicted yesterday because that's immediately where my mind went just about every time. Thank God I was preparing a sermon on 2 Corinthians 3. Because I wanted to think, talk about the things we're running or the programs we're trying or the future, but, but that would be like if you said, Dave, tell me about your family. And I said, I'd love to. We've got a three-bedroom house and two cars, but one of them needs a service. On Wednesdays, we do takeaway. Friday mornings is swimming lessons. And, oh, I think I've got some photos. Yep, here they are. One of each of our bank accounts. That's just missing the point, isn't it? If you ask me about my family, I'm going to tell you about people. I've got a thousand photos of my kids. You're going to see them whether you like it or not. I'm going to tell you that Edie's four and a half and and she's learning to read. She's growing and and she's getting it. And and Freya's two and a half and she's learning not to hit Edie so much, but she too (laughs) is making progress in that. Families are all about people. And church is a family. And so that's why we do everything we do here. Because we want to see people transformed by the good news of the victory of Jesus. So you'll hear people most weeks get up and invite you to serve on a roster of some kind, I want to say that's a really important part of our life together. If your family had 400 people in it, you too would have a meal roster. But here's how to think about our church programs, because I think we do need them, right? By saying people are more important than programs, I'm not saying let's throw them out. But let's think about our programs correctly. The way to think about all our church programs is this. They're just a way to organize love. Every roster, every meeting, every gathering, every agenda, every memo that we generate together is a way to organize love, to help us love and serve one another and the community around us, to remind one another that we are loved by the God who won the greatest victory ever. So please serve in a program. Please step onto a roster if you have the time or space. Please step into that. Don't let the fear of pride stop you. Help us organize love for one another. But a warning too, if you do that a lot, if you're on lots of rosters already, there is a danger that the program becomes more important than the people you serve with it. And you want to be careful of that too. Rosters don't get the job done by themselves. We're trying to organize love. So, so if you're on lots of rosters, like if you're a uni student with just infinite time because you're doing an arts degree, for example, <laughs> join the rosters, but for every roster you're on, organize a coffee as well. Try and meet with someone face-to-face, open the Bible, show them the victory of Jesus again. Be reminded and encouraged by that. But let's do all that we do to be the fragrance and aroma of Christ and his victory to love one another in that direction as people. Through programs, yes, but ultimately so that we see hearts changed by the spirit of the living God.
Programs are just a means to an end. Our budgets are a means to an end. Staffing, strategies, buildings, services are a means to an end, and the end is the glory of Jesus. So let's love one another in that direction. Not because we're sufficient to do it ourselves, but because Christ has already won the victory and we get to join in the parade. Let's pray. Great God, we praise you for the risen Lord Jesus who rules and reigns over all things. We thank you that the great victory belongs to him and yet he gives it to us as well. That mortality is no longer our problem, that death and sin are conquered. So God, we pray that through us, through our fumbling and efforts and most of all through our weakness, would you spread the good news of Jesus and his victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.